Welcome to season two of the Voices of UMass Med podcast. We hope you're having a great summer and are so glad you found us, particularly since we're fortunate today to be joined by Dr. Michael F. Collins. He is the Chancellor of the University of Massachusetts Medical School, of course, and also Senior Vice President for Health Sciences across the University of Massachusetts system. Welcome, Chancellor. Thank you, it's good to be back. Nice to be back with you again, and you. this is actually one of the best times of the year in this community. We're welcoming new class of medical students, advanced nursing students, PhD candidates to our community. What feelings does this time of year bring forth in you? Makes me very nervous. <laughs> Why you know, nervous? Well, Why? Don't you remember the first days at school? And, I sure do. And when uh, our students are assembled for, you know, what is really sort of the first day of fulfillment of a dream to want to be a doctor or a nurse or to pursue science, it evokes in me a sense of nervousness. You know, I have a, the privilege of speaking to the medical school class the first, first of the morning, the first lecture that they receive, and uh, I get very excited uh, to have a chance to greet them. And, and in every way, um, I look at them as, uh, as my future junior colleagues. You know, I have a, a picture in my office of my mentor, and I can always think back to when we actually took that picture. He was giving me my diploma from residency days. And I can guarantee you when that picture was taken, in a million years, he didn't ever think that I might have something to do with his care. When I look at these students now, I look at them and I say, you know, into the future, these could be um, the clinicians are going to be looking after me. We better get this right. That's and good. it's a very much a personal sense of responsibility and stewardship of their educational careers. Really makes you want to do a good job For on sure. their behalf. And, <laughs> and even though they're, they're, they're on their first, very first day of medical school, they've already come so far and accomplished so it's much. It's amazing. You know, the, I think one of the things that's so special about our students is that they, they come with a, a certain sense of idealism. Um, you know, these are, these are some of the most uh, intelligent students in their cohort of students. And they, because of the, the, the scrutiny that a, a medical student or a nursing student receives, they're, they've, they've, you know, they've always been among the best students in class and the most accomplished students in, in their, their field of study or in their testing. And they could go pretty much anywhere they wanted to. I've always said if you took a medical school class and put that on Wall Street, they'd all be billionaires huh? because just the, the drive and the intellect that they bring to the equation. But they come here, you know, we have a phrase in our admissions committee called Miles Traveled. And uh, our students have very accomplished grades and very accomplished uh, testing results, but they also have had very interesting miles traveled. You know, they play musical instruments. They've volunteered in, on cancer wards and in research labs. They've been in foreign countries uh, caring for those most in need. And now they come and uh, we begin the stewardship of a career in which they'll now think about and then eventually um, act on um, the privilege of caring for others. And the, the School of Medicine specifically, the class size has grown in recent years. So what are we at now and, and what's the, what are some of the reasons behind that growth? Well, we're at 162. So I'm beginning my 13th year at the medical school. And, and when Dean Flott and I came here, the class size was 100. And there was a major national initiative around uh, increasing class size. No matter what metric you look at uh, in the United States, we know we're going to need more doctors. 
if you look at the aging of the doctor population, if you look at the aging of the population in general, if you look at um, any cohort of practitioner by year they graduate, we know that we're going to need more doctors. We may have a little bit of a maldistribution problem, but we know we're going to need more. And uh, so there was a, a national initiative to increase class size in every medical school by 30%, and we had not responded. And uh, so uh, Terry and I began the, you know, the process of saying, okay, how might we do that? And we increased class size to 125. It's, you have to be careful about how you do that because there are uh, uh, constraints in your accreditation. But when we did that, then we, we ran with 125 for a while. Then we broadened our clinical affiliate base, and as we did that, we've now been able to increase to 162. And perhaps one of the biggest changes in all of that was our, um, admissions of our admission of students from out of state. And, uh, you know, it was very interesting. Our students had been talking to us about having out-of-state students. And honestly, I, I figured since we were supported by the Commonwealth, and may maybe that wasn't necessarily the right thing, but I think with time we've all come to see that it helps. It helps us with a number of things. It helps us with diversity of thought, with diversity of background. You know, it seemed odd to us that a student would come to Massachusetts to go to college, maybe from New York or New Jersey or Connecticut, go to Brandeis or Boston College, Holy Cross or MIT, and, and the students from Massachusetts were able to come here to med school, but someone like that who was going to stay here and be here wasn't able to, to come to our school. And actually, it's turned out to be a great thing. Um, our, our student body now is much more reflective of of the nation is is challenging us in, in all wonderful ways about, you know, we have students who come here from the West Coast have never had a, a, a an overcoat and all of a sudden <laughs> it starts to snow in Worcester and, and boy, it gets cold and you know, boy, what are they gonna do? Or, or you know, I, one thing I wondered about was would, would family come to the white coat ceremony? That's not been an issue at all. In fact, they come, uh, it's such an important moment in life. So I think it's been a great thing. So 162 will be the class size. We, we did not um, reduce by one the number of students from Massachusetts. So we had 120 before, uh, and when we were at 125, we had five MD-PhD students. We still have 120 seats for Massachusetts students. We'll have 37 or so from out-of-state students, and then five to eight MD-PhDs. And you know, that number goes up and down by one or two or three each year in each one of those categories. But 162 is the number, and that's who will be here. I'm glad you mentioned that, because I still think, even though it's, we're a few years into it, there are still some people who don't realize that you can be an out-of-state resident yes. and come to UMass Medical School. Yes. And there's a ton of demand for this medical education and for the other things that we offer. It, more than 3,500 applicants for 162 yes. seats, doesn't um, that? And, that like, and that's, as you point out, that's sort of the early days of the knowledge that folks can uh, from out-of-state can apply. Um, we have, you know, roughly, you know, five or six times the number of applicants from Massachusetts for the seats we have, and we have multiples of, you know, thousands of applications for those few 37 out-of-state out of seats. And, and by the way, that then gives us a pool of students with very wonderful accomplishments and the most interesting miles traveled. You and Dean Terry Flott, who you mentioned earlier, have also established the medical school's first regional campus. That's in Springfield, Massachusetts, and in partnership with Bay State Health. We call it UMMS Bay State, as of course you know. Why is that an important partnership, specifically for the people of the Western Mass and, and the greater Springfield area? Well, I think it's, it's, it's important for lots of different reasons. First of all, I think it's a very 
natural affiliation and, and, and actually working together with the leadership at Bay State, um, uh, Dr. Mark Kerouac and, and Dr. Andy Artenstein, who's the regional dean there, has allowed us to um, very much immerse with the faculty at Bay State um, for the needs of, of, of folks in the western part of the Commonwealth. So let's, let's look at it. First, the program is focused on primary care, both in the urban and rural setting. What better place to do that than Springfield, where it's a very large city in the Commonwealth and surrounded by lots of rural regions. We have many students from our state uh, who, want, uh, who come from those areas and want to practice in those areas. Um, Bay State has a desire to, um, to have outstanding residents and our students that will go out into what we call the PERCH program, the program in urban and rural community health, will go there um, and focus on, uh, on the needs of the population served by Bay State and in the western part of the uh, state. And we're hoping that it will be quite natural for them then to stay to do some of their residency training or if they choose to come to Worcester or some other place to do their residency, that they'll then be lured back to the western part of the state because of the experience they had when they're there. And there's a very thorough admissions process that attempts to discern the commitment of the student to, the, uh, uh, to urban and rural community health. Our goal is to recruit those students who believe that this is what they want to do and then to work together with Bay State to encourage them to to then want to practice in that part of the Commonwealth. And, and God knows we need more doctors out in the western part of the state, and so this was an attempt to, to do that. I think that's a growing trend to sort of marry population health with primary care. No question. And, it, there's, uh, a, there's a very um, interesting you know, statement that a lot of folks make now. Is it your zip code or your genetic code that makes a big difference in your health care? And, and we know that where you're born a few zip codes away, life expectancy, life expectancy could differ by as much as 10 years. And we know that in the urban settings, in the inner city where there's poverty and food insecurity, um, that the health care is not as good in that urban setting just a few blocks away. And we know that in some rural settings, the care is not anywhere near as good as it would be in the urban setting. So this is a chance for us to um, to go out there and to, to think about all these issues, to do it together with a group of, again, of students who come with a tremendous amount of idealism and a very, very committed faculty. I must say, it could not be going better out there. I think the folks there have really embraced the relationship with the medical school and our students, do we have our first cohort of students now uh, beginning their third year out there, so this will be the fourth year of the program, and um, it's, it's really going terrifically. And so we'll start to see some of those results that you're talking about in the next few years. Well, we've already seen some, actually. We, we've seen um, more students from our medical school matching in the residency programs at Bay State. It's not a large number, but it's more than we used to have. And now when we'll come through where there's 25 students in that program right now, it'll be very interesting to see a year from now in the fourth year match how many of those students choose to stay uh, at a program near the western part of the state. We're speaking with UMass Medical School Chancellor, Dr. Michael F. Collins. So what is the best advice you can personally offer to all incoming students? Well, I, I sort of focus on a wor uh, two words, uh, perspective and privilege. The best advice I can give you is that um, it's a very demanding curriculum. It's a very demanding course of study. 
uh, keep life in perspective. I'll tell the students, I don't know how successful I am at this, I'll tell the students, always have a good book going at the same time. And even in medical school? Even in medical school, have a good book going because every now and then you have to clear the, you have to clear the air. And you, know, you may think you can study 20 hours a day, but you can't really study 20 hours a day with effectiveness. So have a good book going. Realize that there's a world out there that where important things are going on. And, and don't forget that idealism you come to medical school with because you, if you come with a perspective, and, I, and our students do, they come with a perspective from having served others and, and be present in needy population, having tutored young people, having been in the developing world, don't lose that because you come and get involved in a rigorous process. And then recognize the great privilege it is that we have uh, to care for others. Now just think of the moment that our students will have in a few months when they go to the anatomy lab. That is a privilege given to very few people in society. Now I always get a chuckle when I say this, but it's a nervous laugh. Imagine anyone but a doctor dissecting a human body. You know what happened, the person goes straight to jail. But in medical school, we're given the privilege, largely from our first teachers, of this enormous gift of a body donated to science so that we can learn the anatomy of the human body and therefore then apply that to care for others into the future. That's an enormous privilege. And I think if, the, if our students recognize that, and I, I will tell them uh, in my opening lecture, that they should always hold the hand of their cadaver with esteem. Their donor has given their body so that they um, can make an enormous difference in their profession. And if they hold the hand of their cadaver with esteem, then they will demonstrate that they recognize the privilege that they've been given. Uh, that leads me to ask you about medical education. Like all higher education, it's changing, it's it evolving. Mm -hmm. Our students are wanting to learn more interprofessional, in, in interprofessional teams and experientially. How do you sort of think about that and how do you see the, the curriculum changing here? Well, there's lots of us thinking about it. I, I guess it's important to the chance to think about it, but we have lots of, lots of folks who are um, our, our most accomplished educators thinking about this with us. I think there's a few things that are sort of present in my mind. First, our students come to medical school now much more technologically proficient than the faculty was at the time. And so there's, there's quite a bit of desire to use um, more technologically competent forms of learning. And the notion that, you know, I think if you sort of watch Dr. Kildare from the day and Dr. Kildare would walk into a room and there'd be 150 students dressed in white coats, or you think back to the Aikens painting of, you know, that first dissection at Penn, you, you, that's not the, the visual image anymore. Students really don't want to come and, and we're flipping the education process because students don't want to be sitting in lectures and being lectured to all day long. They, they, we can give them the lecture, they can watch it at night, and then they can come in and in small group settings, um, they can interact together. In fact, we've completely changed the learning environment. Uh, we have, a, we have um, a very collaborative learning environment now of a table of eight chairs that a cohort of students sit together. There's a high-def TV at the head of the table. There is a professor in the, in the middle of the room, but the class is sitting there and, and you know, we don't have microscopes anymore and we don't have you know, little slides. It's all done in high-def ways. And, so, and the students are quite technologically competent to utilize that. In the second year, we have lots of challenges because there's this step one exam that comes at the end of the second year and that raises a certain amount of anxiety in the students. So 
Much of the second year right now is self-directed learning. Our faculty is thinking about that and trying to, you know, uh, think about better ways in which we can do that. By the way, that's a problem across medical education sure. in the country. And UMass is not unique. Not, we're not unique in that, so we're, we're thinking that through with our students. In the, uh, in the third and fourth year, uh, students largely continue largely to have clinical experiences the third year at the home institution. So for the students in the Worcester program, it's, it's in and around the Worcester affiliates. And for the students in the PERCH program, it will be in and around the, the Bay State affiliate. And, and then in the fourth year, there's, a, there's an opportunity for students now to focus down their education on the specialty need that they're most interested in. And there is a bit of traveling around to, uh, to uh, residency, potential residency locations to do electives. Um, while I think there's always opportunity for improvement, the clinical years are largely fairly well set for us. We have a capstone experience now in the fourth year, which is new, so students work on a project together with a faculty member. The student who, who I'm mentoring in, in his capstone, capstone experience is actually looking at the Veterans Affairs organization and, and the benefits of a student being involved in caring for the VA population while a medical student. Will that actually prove beneficial to the veterans in the future because if a student has that experience while in medical school, they're more likely to continue that beyond. And that also, we have, we have very similar things with patients with intellectual disability or disabilities of other sort. If you're involved and more comfortable with those patients while you're in medical school, it's likely to want to continue into the future. So um, it's a, uh, one of the one of the faculty said, and we're in, in very engaged in a strategic planning process right now. One of the faculty members said, you know, the one thing that's constant about medical education is that it's always changing, yeah. and we certainly see that in the current day. But it sounds like there are also lots of opportunities here Tremendous for students to choose their own path and yes. what they're interested in. Yes. As we wrap up, you mentioned technology and everywhere in every facet of our life we're seeing you know technology intrude in in some ways or or enhance in others. Does it help medical education? Oh, for sure. Um, and, and and what's lost maybe well, in, in the adoption of well, that's technology. the thing. You know, so you know there are some medical schools now that no uh, where students no longer will dissect a donor, where there's either the anonymous table, which is like a seven foot long iPad that has uh, the image of a of a body on it, or there are these. Um, Microsoft or Google Glass-like devices where you, know, you just turn your head around and it's like a video game, but it's actually, you can do the dissection, you know, looking at that. So I think we need to preserve, when we talk to our students about that, they very much want to preserve the opportunity to hold the hand of their cadaver with esteem. If, Something's if you lost. Will for other, yes, there Something's is. Lost. Um, I think that, uh, you know, there's nothing like listening to the heart sound through a stethoscope, but our students learn heart sounds now through very proficient um, um, uh, learning devices where it's very clear what, what the heart sound or what, what the murmur might be and why and what disease it might be associated. We have large amount of simulation now in medicine. Now I've told everyone when I resuscitated my first patient, it was a patient. The resuscitation was it successful. It was a life or death yes, moment. Yes, <laughs> it was successful. But now our students go through that multiple times. Uh, with simulators long before they would ever go to the patient. And, by the way, we, we teach our students the challenges of giving patients bad, uh, uh, bad news. Or uh, we teach our students how to explain a mistake has been made. And, uh, and, you know, the first time you want to go in and tell someone, well, 
you have a very challenging diagnosis. You don't really want to be doing it with a patient. And we've, we've come to learn that. And so our students are, are uh, given the opportunity through technological experiences or video um, uh, uh, modalities through role playing uh, to, to learn that. And I think they feel um, quite confident about that. I'm, I'm very proud that for five years running, we are uh, the number one medical school in student satisfaction on the AAMC survey. And uh, I think that tells us that we're, we're doing, our faculty is doing it quite well. Excellent. Chancellor Collins, thank you so much for your time. Nice to be together. Here's to a great academic year ahead. Thank you for listening. I'm Jennifer Berryman, Vice Chancellor for Communications at the University of Massachusetts Medical School. Keep up to date with everything happening at UMass Medical School by following us on Facebook at UMass Med, on Twitter at UMass Medical, and on LinkedIn at University of Massachusetts Medical School.